Let's talk about the doctrine of God, and as is our custom, we want to begin with a roundtable. So, have at it. Uh, you guys discuss these three questions. Make sense? No. Well, it did to me. <laughs> if the uh, I'm giving you a hint with that. If theo, meaning the Greek for God, ology, the knowledge of God. If theology is the study of God, why do you think we typically call all articles of Christian faith topics in theology? Oh, topics in theology. Yes, it's the S. That's all. you got to read between the lines with me. In other words, and what does that assume about God? So in other words, I don't think today's topic, the topic is God. I'm, I'm suggesting that we would not just call this a theology class today and then tomorrow and the next day something else, right? We're, we're calling the whole course a theology class. So it's, it's a bit, meant to be a little bit of a question to get you to think about what theology is. And this quote should give you the answer more or less. Y'all want to go up? Let's go on. How are you, Mark well, anybody want to try the riddle? Since it's now a riddle, that's the cool thing. Is it just got elevated to a riddle? So, how how do you think we should uh, interpret that third question? We'll go back to the first two. Everything we believe is about God, and God relates to everything that we construct our faith about. So, if we're talking yeah. ecclesiology, or you know, scripture, or Christology or whatever, it's all coming from the context of, you know, how we understand God. Good. So what does that tell you about, that's right, so now, second question of that, what does that tell you? What did he just confess about God? What did he just confess? If, if, if everything he said is true, what did you just confess before you even get there about God? That he's the head of everything and influences everything else that we believe. Amen. That's right. Anything else? It says he's the center and the starting point. He's the big alpha and the omega of everything that exists. He is everything that exists is a revelatory event of God. And it really is a mind-boggling and worldview transforming thought to believe that everything all things whatsoever that comes to pass providentially the doctrine of providence all things that are creationally all things that happen towards our salvation or our soteriology or salvationally all of it is a self-revelatory event and that's what that quote was meant to get you to, this idea that you can't study anything, nothing, and not in the most classical sense of scientia, the word science, understand that you are studying God, the knowledge of God. That's, that's you just became a Calvinist, if you will. You just became a, you know, we believe in the sovereignty of God that extends to all things and their, all creatures and their actions, all events and their causes and their secondary causes, all things, that God is sovereign. So therefore, everything that we study is the study of God in his revelatory event. Now, that's really earth-shattering, because that means it shapes the way you think about events in your life. 
that shapes the way you think about what you're studying in economy or economics or business. I mean, you're, there's a revelatory event going on in your workday every day. Now, you've got to be careful to interpret those events in light of Scripture, which is what we're doing this for. But it makes a case here, this is a little bit loud, but it makes a case for why it's so important that we're in this room. You know, if you want to discern the will of God, it's not going to be because there's a nice little flow chart. It's because you have become wise in a worldview that is enabled to process things within that total holistic worldview of the doctrine of God. So, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, theology, and especially confessional theology, is like a, a spider web. And every everything is connected. It's organic. Everything is connected to it. It's like, it's a body metaphor. And so that's very important. So that's right. That's, that's sort of the idea. Let's read that quote. Does anybody have the quote where they can actually read it because it's not too small? Can, you, can anybody read that quote? I think it's a pretty cool quote. Knowledge of God is the only doctrine, the sole content of the entire field of dogmatics. All the doctrines, treat, doctrines treated in dogmatics, whether in regard to the universe, man, Christ, etc., are but the explication of the central dogma of the knowledge of God. Everything is treated with God as center and starting point. Under Him, all things are subsumed. To Him, all things are traced back. It is the knowledge of Him, of Him alone, you know, if you really want to read a beautiful and pietistic and amazing contemplation of that thought, take take uh, some time and read that Calvin, uh, the Calvin that I recommend here in the bibliography. You know, John Calvin was an amazingly brilliant thinker, of course. Calvinism is hard to read. Calvin is a delight. It's a genuine worship experience to read him. And, you know, it's interesting that all the Calvinists don't quite write like Calvin, but it really is. And, and this is a concept that he just, he just really based in. And, of course, if you remember a couple of weeks ago, it assumes a worldview where our view of knowledge, our view of epistemology, is not the, what the Enlightenment did when they turned everything upside down. You know, before the Enlightenment... You start with what do we know, and then how do we get to know it? Post-enlightenment, Descartes, we start with how do we, get, how do we know something, and then we'll fit into that what we can know, which was the Cartesian Revolution. The idea that we start with myself and my apparatus, and based on my apparatus, as in positivism, as in, as in you know, the idea that sensory perception is all we can know, then we postulate from that, what can we know about God? This is an assumption that there is revelation in the world. The Enlightenment did away with that assumption. So it's a huge, huge, if you put it into the history of philosophy and theology, what you're reading here, I just need to at least give you a, a qualifier, is an upside-down way of thinking about life post-Enlightenment. And uh, it's a very profound quote, though. Well, let's go back to number one. How do most people think of God? Let's start with this thing back here. What, what, what do you think? Let's, let's start with where we live in the world, though, right? Um, what, what are people thinking? When, when we say God, what do you think most people are thinking back there? Well, we were discussing several things. One, uh, people often think of God as some entity that's out there that we can't mm. relate to, mm. um, we can't know, we can't know mm -hmm. about, just some, some distant thing. But, so spirituality. Um, yeah, yeah. Good. 
I think you're right on. Do you all agree with that? I mean, most people today, when you really talk to them and say, what, what is God? I mean, they're just going to think of it as a very unpersonal, impersonal, I should say, spirit that's just, you know, not personal and just everywhere and everything kind of power. That's spirituality. That's Buddhism. That's Hinduism. Um, good. Anything else? What about this group? What do most people think of when they think of God now? What, what's the context that we have coming into this study? Um, we got a little more specific and said, well, what about a Christian God, per se, and said mm. people think that it's just a moral lawgiver mm. that imposes his will on everyone and okay, is demanding or something like that. It doesn't really want me to be happy in a way. There's this kind of... I think that view is still out there. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Definitely very a lawgiver. That's a nice way of, you know, God is someone we have to deal with. <laughs> yeah, and, and, you know, before I die, I better deal with him if he really exists. But I'm right now trying to avoid him because when I get around him, I just get more laws. And it just makes me feel more burdened. And so that phrase of Jesus, my yoke is easy, my burden light, is totally not experienced by that notion of God. That's good. I like that. What about you guys? The stable. We talked a little bit about how some of the mistaken ideas about God aren't uh, aren't fully wrong in so far as they go. Mm -hmm. uh, like how people might think that God is going to, you know, punish all their sins and you know exact terrible justice. That part's true. <laughs> uh, it's just that then they they reject that part and they don't accept the yeah. whole. That's a good point. So there's a God that's a God of wrath, but, but because there's not, you know, we were talking, Nicole and I were talking a little earlier, but, you know, the Pharisees' problem starts with their God was too small, especially his love. And therefore, if God's love is too small, they, had, they underestimated the love and the grace of God. Therefore, what do you got to do to the law? You got to reduce the law. Because you got to reduce the law to the point where you can keep it, where you can satisfy it somehow. So, so the irony is, is the Pharisees had, we think of them as being very legalistic in the sense that they had this big, robust laws. But that was at the opposite of how Jesus responded to the Pharisees. He responded as, your law, your God, your law is not law enough. You've heard it said, but let me tell you. You think murdering is pulling their gun? Man, you got something wrong. It's, it's, it's deep. It's, it's hating someone. Is is the as a murderous uh, person, and he went on and on and on like that to exasperate these guys to realizing that their their law was small, and of course the point of the prodigal son was to show with their conception of what a father would do. Of course, the the, the older son was the Pharisee, and they, he was exposing that their God was too small in His love. So that's a great example, and I think that's especially true of what I call a kind of burned over Christendom. I mean, I really think you're speaking of a God. These last two were a little bit more Christendom, whereas this other is a lot more in the more of the global scene of, of trying to accommodate world religions, God. And I think the more global we become, the more we're going to find ourselves moving towards what, you know, uh, what, who was it? Um, Neuro-Buddhism. Brooks, David Brooks has this little article called Neuro-Buddhist. You want to go back and read that in New York Times. I'm sure you can get it on Google. And it really is a beautiful depiction of, I think, what's happening globally in the cities, especially, uh, with the kind of notion of God. Okay, one more. 
back there, God. What did, what, what did you all talk about? I think we were saying that uh, people are not thinking about God at all. That mm -hmm. would be an empty concept. They're just not thinking about it. Okay? But when they do, we're a bit closer to table number one. You're closer to table number one. Yeah, it's the spirit, and I think credit for the analogy of the wind. The what? The wind. The wind. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Good. What do you find most difficult to believe about God? What are some of the difficult things? Now we're getting into the doctrines themselves. Well, one of the things that has always bothered me, especially if you read that second chapter of the Westminster Confession, mm -hmm. that you take quality that I guess we all admire or see in other people, and then we add a superlative to it, and that's God. Called the communicable attributes of God. That's right. We'll talk about those. So, but it's not just a, a superlative. It's a what hyper superlative. It's, it's most, as in there can be no more. So that troubles you because of why? It seems too human. It seems kind of artificial. Mm. It seems artificial. And yet, it's the very basis of how we know and judge ourselves, isn't it? I mean, in other words, what would love be? without a standard that of being love. How much of that comes from like Greek philosophy yeah. where there was a perfect chair? Well, it, you might could, I mean, obviously we want to argue that it comes from Scripture. So you, you're asking how much of the Scripture come from Greek philosophy? Because we certainly know the Bible teaches that God is love. Right? So, yeah, tell me what you're thinking there. I mean, I'm, I like this. Keep going. Um, you think it like that? No, I'm just thinking that it sounds it sounds very artificial. So you mm -hmm. just get all these qualities, you add a superlative, and it's that's God. It sounds that way, but is it? Do you think? I guess one question though is the limits of language, right? So God might be God is holy other, but how does one describe that in the context of the language that we have that is itself finite and limited? And so we can say God is great. Then we say God is greater to try and set apart that level of greatness for the thing. That's right. I, I would even add, though, and this is really perfect for the, study, the way I set the study up, because I wasn't anticipating the question, but it, it's going to work well, actually. Theologians have, described, have, have differentiated between what's called communicable and incommunicable attributes of God. Communicable, as you'll see, are attributes that have correlations in humanity. Now, is that, is, that a, is that a reasonable assumption that humanity would have attributes that correlate to God? Yes. Why would you say that? Because we're created. Exactly. Is it reasonable that, that therefore creation have corollaries to God? The way art would have a corollary to the artist. So what you're going to find is, we're, you know, it's not a, a reasonable argument. It's not a rhetorical argument to argue that because something is associated with something wrong, it's therefore wrong. So it may be true that the Greek philosophers, uh, as you rightly suggest, have sort of created gods out of their own image. And that's basically what I'd say the Greek system was doing. I mean, you had these gods, and often they were lower than human in their passions and jealousies and some of their rashness and things like that, if you remember all the tragedies and all that. 
So it's true that, that there's a tendency to create God out of our own image, but it's not true that if we find correlations between the God of Scripture and humanity, that therefore we created those images. You see? That's a false syllogism I just walked you through. So what I would say is, sure, I would expect that humanity would have correlate attributes to the God in which they were patterned after. Even if, though, I would expect that if, if it's God, that his attributes that we correlate after are perfections. And that's the only purpose of that superlative, is the, the perfection of God. That it cannot be improved upon. Yeah, and, that's, and the question you really have to ask is, is that taught in Scripture? And if it is, that's where we go. But that's great. See, I love the thing that Fred can always think. I like that. <laughs> Well, let's keep going. Um, so uh, let's begin in prayer. Father, thank you for just uh, the, the fun of having an opportunity like this to really step back and get out of our busy lives and schedules. And oftentimes uh, when disconnected from a theology and a belief system, which so easily that can happen when no one speaks of God in our workplace or does anything like that, it, it, life becomes mundane. Life becomes... It seems so meaningless. So, Father, I pray that as we study you, that not only would it make us uh, to take off our shoes and worship you, because that's the only rightful response to any knowledge of you. This is not just speculative science. It's not um, flipping about in our brain knowledge that we can puff up. It's We know that you reveal yourself to us because you want us to worship you, and to worship you is to have life. And so, Lord, help us to worship you tonight in mind, in thought, and then help us to rediscover the worthness of our lives uh, when all of life is an expression of you. And so help us, we pray, in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so let's let's start with the study guide. And again, uh, we really are turning a page here in our, in our methodology a little bit. We've been talking a lot about theology, uh, even... I guess scripture got into it a little bit, but now we really are going after it. Who's, what is God? And next week, these next two weeks are huge because they really get the doctrine of God. So we're at Westminster Confessions of Age, chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. Would someone read chapter 1 or section 1 for us? Anybody got that on their computer? There is but one only living and true God who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions. Immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will, for his own glory, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek him, and withal, most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, who will by no means clear the guilt. Now let's just keep in mind that when the Westminster Divines met in Westminster, they met for 1,162 days, if I remember correctly. And these people were no wimps. <laughs> um, they would debate every word. Every word would be debated. This list could sound like poetic sort of you know, murmuring. But every word, 
very carefully thought about. Look at the, if you're on the online version, this is your Python, look at the scripture references. Every, every word then is going to reference you to scripture that wants you to think about this. And what's really important to know is that the very heart and soul of the Westminster way of doing theology is they knew that this description of God was setting you up for every single other doctrine you're going to learn. They, their, their goal explicitly in their minutes was to be consistently God-centered so that they wanted to constantly work out every, every doctrine that you will learn about at Westminster is going to be a systematic attempt to work out what do we say we believe about God. Now that's really important to, to, to recognize that. that, that these, these people were really thinking like that. This was not prose. This was not poetry. This was meant to be a constitutional document that was going to rule the Church of England. And so, you know, when you think of it that way now, you begin to realize, well, let's slow down. Let's really ask about these words. Let's really ask about what these things are saying. So, just generally, though, um, what I want you to notice, just to help you frame it, I already alluded to it uh, with, uh, with Fred here, that we want to stop and think, and it's been helpful at least for me to think this way, those, you know, I don't see a Bible that says these are communicable and these are incommunicable, but just to think of the categories of God, some are communicable, some have correlations, if you will, um, that emphasize his personal nature. And that's what we mean by communicable. They're, they're, they're these kinds of attributes that we find in humanity. And again, we would argue that if it's true that man has made the image of God, we would expect as much. But then there are these other attributes that just have no correlation to humanity. It just doesn't compute. And many of these words are going to be words like that, where we're going to have to stop and ask, wow, can I even possibly get my head around that and the implications of that? I mean, some of the categories, as you'll see, but, you know, and, and we'll get into that. So with that being said... Um, Let's look at, this, there's a study guide sort of format now to this, so we'll just kind of walk through it and, and see how far we can go. So what would we expect then in terms of understanding God? What does our confession tell you? Automatically, what are you expecting, or maybe better, what are you not expecting, based upon what our confession just said? Look at the language. Who is infinite in being and perfection. I mean, What? And then invisible, immense, eternal, and then the last word there, incomprehensible. Now, I wish, again, I don't mean to be picking at the enlightenment, but that really gets under my skin as a guy that likes to think I'm smart. Or the guy that likes to think that I have access to the kind of science or the kind of rational syllogistic brilliance that can find, that can end all doubt. The kind of notion that we live under that says fact can only be that which you can prove using our finite scanty, our finite apparatus, our rationality or our sensory perception. Those, remember, were the two ways that we know what we know after Descartes. You can only start with what we know. We know I exist. I exist as a positivist, if you know positivism philosophically, I exist as a mind, as a rationalism. And now this thing comes up here and says, blow that. You know, by definition, if God is God, he's going to blow that all up. By definition, 
You don't know God if he's comprehensible. What do y'all think of that? That's an amazing statement right now of what we're supposed to be expecting in doing theology. If you know God, you should expect it, that knowledge, to be incomprehensible. Which just means we're reduced to humility and faith. So we're going to make it, we've made a distinction already, remember three weeks ago, or two weeks ago, three weeks ago, that, that we, are, we, we are a people, confessional theology approaches theology as a revelatory event that we're seeking to understand. It's not an evidentialist event that we're seeking to prove. But what we will have is an event wherein we're going to look for a scale to tip and we'll discern that it's more reasonable than not to believe in God, therefore I'm going to leap. Because to leap, not leap, is to leap anti-God with less reason. So it's not that faith is unreasonable. I'm just rehearsing what we did two weeks ago. It's that we are not going to reason God. God is not going to fit into our categories however much we try to make a category. And that's what the divines are, are describing here. That whatever else is happening here, guys, you know, it is going to be a humiliating experience for you to know God. What do you all think of that? How does that fit the sensibilities of our of our modern life? What do you think? Are you following that? Are you okay with that? Are there scriptures we need to look at? I bet there are, and I'm going to look at some. Go ahead, Becky. Um, well, I think what I hear most, um, I think of a sense of completeness, mm-hmm. so that um, God is the end, so that we're not enough, so that all our longings will be satisfied in God, because he is... Most is an, in, in, I have this down here, I look, have a dictionary, it's interesting because y'all are reacting to this most word, I actually have a dictionary analysis of it, but most typically, I mean, if you think about it, it's, it's infinite, it has to be infinite, it, 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 it goes and goes and goes and goes and goes, it, and it, it just keeps going, and it, conceptually at least, so it's an infinite attribute to be most, and you know, you think about what, so it's true, you're right, we can always, we can never attain to it. Let's read a couple of scriptures. Would somebody read Romans 11, 33 through 36? Who's got that one for me? Romans 11, 33, uh, 11, 33 through 36. Who's got it? Could somebody else read oh, um, Psalms 145, 1 through 3? I won't read all these passages. So who's got Romans? Raise your hand. You got your Bibles on your phone, don't you? Did y'all really go to a theology class without a Bible? <laughs> no way. Yeah, and who's got Job? I mean, our Psalms. Thank you. There's some other good ones here, but we'll stop with that. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Amen. And Psalm? Um, you said 143? 145. 143. Oh, right. Great sack. I lost it. No problem. Verse 1? 1 through 3. 1 through 3. Um, I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. Yeah, that last verse. His greatness is unsearchable. 
you get a lot of passages. Job, you know, there's a lot of it in Job. You know, the inscrutableness, the incomprehensibleness of God. Um, again, I just want you to put that in context. I, I know we could be worshiping already in a, in a more hallmark way with this, but I want you to think about how countercultural this concept is in a post-enlightenment universe. Now, the good news is that, again, I don't want to go too deep with you on this, but postmodernism is modernism plus. So, on the surface, it could appear that postmodernism is now more open to mystery. And it's more open to spiritualism because it doesn't want the reductionist method of modern theology that's trying to fit it into a rationalism or into a little comprehensive positivist test, right? So, that's what is true. The postmodernism is rejecting this sort of notion that we can have pure, to to, to, Immanuel Kant, many say, is a postmodernist before his time. But we can't have pure reason. They just totally died even the possibility of pure reason. Immanuel Kant wrote this treatise to say, there is pure reason, and pure reason can't be utilized to gate God, therefore I'm making room for faith. Whereas postmodernism is going to say, even pure reason isn't really reasonable. (laughs) So it it just got rid of more rationality, it meant more positivism. But in doing so... It, it doesn't necessarily make room for faith. It just says there is no faith. There is no. It's nihilism. But if it works, so it, it turned to Kant. What Kant said, and I hope I'm not going too much, but what Kant said is earlier, he said, so, so how, do we, how do we know what we know? Well, it's, if it's pragmatic, if it's spiritually pragmatic, and that's the old, what you guys would hear on the streets. If it works for you, that's really great. See, that's, that, you really ought, if you, want, if you want a treat, go read The Critique of Pure Reason by Immanuel Kant. It'll be a heavy read, but I'm telling you, it's unbelievable how foreshadowing it is with the phrase today, well, if that works for you, I'm happy for you. Because we really don't believe in truth. We don't believe in truth that we can attain. So here we have this idea of mystery, incomprehensible, pre-modern way of thinking about it, which just blows apart the idea that, that we could possibly ever comprehend God reason, reasonably or positively. And yet the response of that is, but there is revelation, and therefore we believe, even if I can't prove it, and therefore we worship. And so listen to this wonderful quote um, by Herman Bobbink in his little book on the doctrine of God. Mystery, he says, is a vital element of dogmatics. So dogmatics is confessional theology. By the way, that's what dogmatics is. You know, it's, it's different from systematic theology. Now, the reason why the church people hate the word dogmatic is because it comes across as judgmental. But see, dogmatics is a confessional knowledge of God. It's the kind of knowledge that we're supposed to believe. Therefore, it does have a moral... Uh, it, it is a moral thing to believe, we think. And so dogmatics is a moral term, and that's why people offend it. But actually, I think it's a wonderful term. Because it means Yes. We're supposed to believe this about God. I'll be judged based on whether I believe this about God. It's dogmatic. And we mean that in a good sense of a confessional theology, though we don't use that word publicly very often. Mystery, then, is a vital element to this way of doing theology. Is it true that the term mystery in Scripture does not indicate abstract supernatural truth in a Romish sense? Nevertheless, the idea that the believer would be able to understand and comprehend intellectually the revealed mysteries is equally unscriptural. On the contrary, the truth with which God has revealed concerning himself in nature and scripture far surpasses human conception and comprehension. 
in this sense, God Maddox is concerned with nothing but mystery. For it does not deal with finite creatures, but from beginning to end raises itself above every creature to the eternal and endless one himself. And I, 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 this has helped me. Because it did dawn upon me before I knew much about this stuff that if I were really apprehending God, that there would have to be questions at the end of that search, or I'm not really apprehending God. In other words, it took away the angst that modernity told me that if you can't comprehend something fully, you can't comprehend it at all. That's false. That's just a lie. Just because I can't comprehend something fully doesn't mean I can't comprehend it. And in this sense, I can't comprehend God fully, but that doesn't mean I can't comprehend it. The, the idea that he does exist and that he has certain things revealed to us as a gift of faith. Yeah? Wouldn't you rather say if you can't comprehend something, that doesn't mean you can't know something about God? I've heard it parsed like this. Uh, modernity wants comprehension, but instead we can have apprehension. We can apprehend something, we can understand something, which is like what you're saying, which is different yeah. language. Those are semantics. I'm not sure I understood what you said, but yeah, that it's helps. Similar. It's a semantic sort of turn of the phrase, but that's fine. And the, the term comprehension tends to assume all knowledge is right. right. So I think the, the parsing was that we, we don't comprehend God because we can't understand all about God, but we can understand some things about God. That's right. If you're meaning that, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly right. We can't, we can't comprehend them, we can't prove his existence. But, yeah. But we can believe he exists and have reasonable belief in that. Right, this class is very short. Because... <laughs> <laughs> Thank God it's not. It's too much fun. All right. Yeah, there is much we can know about God. In fact, it's, it's, the irony is, is he's revealed enough in Scripture to where I promise you, you can study every day of your life like the monks did and never fully exhausted. It is that rich. Just that simple scripture. And then you guys as scientists would know, you guys as mathematicians would know, you guys as anything you do would know, can you ever fully comprehend any topic? No, because it is ultimately an expression of God. And it's going to be on and on and on and on. I've given this example before. I love that science show where you have this you know, this telescope that starts on a leaf by a... Have y'all ever seen this? Have I said this publicly in this class? I'm teaching three classes simultaneously right now. I can't remember what to say when. Tim and said this. But, you know, this is, there's this wonderful NPR sort of trying to help you understand the universe. And it starts on a leaf next to a, next to a screen. And all of a sudden, it's the telescope, and it just goes into space. And it goes on and on and on and on and on and on. And it just expl- explores more and more of what we have discovered and know. And, you know, you get into other universes and other everything else. It's just unbelievable. And you're going, ah, you know, this is crazy. And then, the, and then it ends with a kind of, you know, and it is impossible for this to stop, right? Because whatever stops, it starts. So it's impossible for this to stop. And then you have this massive, fast movement back into the leaf. And then there's the same thing with a microscope. And you go smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And just keep going, you know, well beyond cellular stuff. There were quarks and all this other stuff. Is that, by the way, the smallest now, or have we got something smaller than a quark? Come on. There's something smaller? What? Neutrinos. I can't hear you. Neutrinos. Neutrinos. So now we're in neutrinos. And we think we're really hot stuff when we found neutrinos. Just watch. We'll find something else. So whatever it is, it's just awesome. So yeah, theology's like that. 
Well, um, in what ways would you expect God to be incomprehensible? Again, uh, you can read some Hodge on this. He talks about self-existence, immensity, eternity, intelligence. Theologians have tried desperately to understand Scripture, just ways to communicate this. But, you know, often you get the words like the omnis, the omnipresent, the omniscience, the omnipotence and sovereignty, uh, perfection language. It's, there is a semantic limitation here, isn't there? But at least we understand, you can look at all these passages, they're phenomenal. If you just want to worship God or have a devotional, take one of these, just take one of these attributes, omnipresence, and just try having a devotion with those scriptures one day. They're, they're short little passages. I really mean it. Go worship, go worship God with these passages. You won't believe it. It's just, a, it's just amazing to think of how, how present God is. Omniscient. Omnipotent. Behold, I am the Lord. The God of all flesh is anything too hard for me. You know, and it's just, wow. Notice the perfection language again of section 1. And what then do you think are the implications of this? Think for a minute of this infinite in being and perfection in this most language that you've done. What do you think? Let's, let's get you to think a little bit more because it's going to set you up a little bit. What does this seem, what do you, where do you think this is going to go? I mean, can you have a God like this and not be what? Anybody want to try? Well, for us, for us, not to be humble, amen. Yeah. What is this? What are we? What are we getting set up for here? And I don't mean they're setting this up intentionally, but what do you think is happening here to us? If, if God is really, tr- if it's really true. And again, even though Aristotle had an idolatrous guide, I loved his phrase, the unmoved mover. But even if it's true that there's an unmoved mover, that which moves all things in himself does not move. That is, that which changes all things but himself never changes. That which loves all things but doesn't need to be loved. You see, that's the kind of notion that you're getting here. You know, if you think about it, I, remember, I do remember organic. It was actually my favorite course in um, pre-med. Uh, what do you call it? Science. And um, I loved it because I just loved the logic of it. And I just, I hated the inorganic stuff, but I hate, I love the organic. I was really weird. But I remember so, it was so amazing to me, this idea of covalent, niotic binding, and all this stuff. But the idea is how all this was searching for perfection. It's searching for perfection. You know, it's, it's this idea there's a constant desire to become the perfect bond. Or whatever you call that. It's been 30 years. And there's a sense in which God isn't doing that. There is no going on. There's no surge. There's no anything because it's a perfectly stable being, this God. Think about the way that would change the way you're going to expect when we start getting into the doctrine of God, his sovereignty, free will, man's will, relation of God to man, our actions, his actions, or his actions contingent on our actions. Could that be possible with the being of God? So are we going to be consistent if God really is perfect and therefore what? Immutable, which means no possibility of changing? How's that going to affect your doctrine of prayer? Why pray? Are we praying to change the mind of God? Or maybe we're praying to change the mind of God from a human perspective, but it's a secondary cause or a first cause that already causes us to pray because he already changed his mind or he didn't have to change his mind. He already had a will. And prayer is the manner in which he is revealing his will to us. You know, how is this going to blow your brain? Am I helping you here? 
This is fine stuff, but you've got to start with this. These few little words. Do you believe, and this is where we need to go. Do you believe tonight that God is infinite in his perfections? That he can't be improved upon? There's a theology called process theology. Anybody ever hear of that? Probably Doug did, and a couple of you did. Well, process theology, this is this guy that God's being is still in process of becoming. And we believe in an orthodox understanding of Scripture that that's, that's not true. He is, he is even Aristotle, an unmoved mover. Any questions about that? Any thoughts? What are you thinking right now? Just that the, the possibility of the cross would seem to necessitate change within God. And so I think that's something that we Okay, yeah. How does God, the infinite being, become man? And the Chalcedonians, they wrestled with that. So we'll see in a minute. And the answer was distinct but never separate. And you can play that one for a while. Did I see someone here? Yeah. Problems. And that's why you don't believe it. So first of all, I, I would agree with you. Now, it, it's going to be in how you read scripture, and is scripture complete? Is it you know it really starts there? If, if you believe scripture is what's called trajectory hermeneutic, and the idea that scripture starts a trajectory of how we do theology, but it continues on and on and on today, so it's not complete the scripture. Well, you can find ways around that, and so that's one way. It's a hermeneutic issue, first of all. But yeah, I think. You know, and then you, you, you're trying to fit it. Usually this stuff starts with a philosophy. If you, if you know existentialism, it's this idea that being is becoming, and now we're fitting God into that reality, and off we go. So there's a lot of assumptions that would have to be undone here. But that, you're right. Well, let's go to the next question. What then is the relation between God being infinite and being in perfection and his being immutable? What are some of the things about God that never change in some implications? Now, I'll stop. We were kind of there, but there's many of the various affirmations in this passage refer to the reality that God is completely independent of anything outside of himself, entirely self-sustaining, and complete in himself. What then would some of the specific things in this section that communicates this reality? What would you say? How did what we just heard read get at some of this issue? The and to me, it's the immutability of God is to me one of the most profound ideas that, that I've thought about. That this God can't change because he's perfect. To, to change perfection would be to move in the wrong direction, right? If God is changeable, he could change for the better or the worse. Good. Well, if he's perfect, he couldn't change for the better, I guess. <laughs> Well, just that he's, he's the best there is. Yeah. So and there's the most words, see, this infinite word. You can't improve upon his life. You can't improve upon his, and that's the idea. And, and there really is a little bit of a scholastic in the 19th century. Uh, that may help you to know how to read Hodge by the way. He's, he's read, 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 you know, reading the Turretons and the, the scholastics, and 
And then there's a little more of that school of thought with that. And so, you know, he's really asking this thing a little bit more philosophically. If you're perfect, the way I describe the cell and, and the whole thing about the body and stuff is getting close to what Hodge was talking about. That there's this being that's, in, that's not in process. And so, think about sovereignty for a minute. I mean, whatever we believe about God, could there be a God who is all-knowing but not all-powerful? That means there are things that happen that are outside of his control. I mean, in other words, if you have them all, we're going to get into this next week a lot when we talk about the decrees and the sovereignty and all that of God. But this, you see where you're going. It's, it's, does God know something's going to happen just because he's been given some kind of a foreknowledge about it but has no control over it? Or does he know something's going to happen precisely because he has the power to affect the will that he has for all eternity? And there's an impossibility of that will being compromised. And how that changed the way you do your car wreck or your devotion or your job change or whatever else, you see? That if you aren't believe this stuff. Any thoughts, questions? You might want to go on. Give me the thing. Yeah. Be all knowing if you're not all powerful. Yeah. Because if, I, if you're all knowing and I'm all powerful, I'll change what you know. Yeah. Exactly. And then he's going to have to change what he knows. So we got a real problem philosophically. And we're going to have to talk about it, because remember, the same confession we're reading has a whole chapter. By the way, if anybody says to you, these Reformed people, these Presbyterian people, these Catholic people, then we can prove Just, well, you know, we're one of the few confessions that has a whole chapter on free will. But it's going to have to describe the freedom of human will in a way that is somehow secondary to the immutable will of God. And there's going to be a mystery, but it's going to be just declared. Because we can't lose God in all this. I want yeah. to point out something here in uh, the uh, chapter two, uh, the first um, uh, paragraph, where in the middle of all of these attributes of God, it, it's so amazing <laughs> that we are reminded He is a rewarder of them that. Yeah, isn't that something? Well, what is, it is, and, and you better watch it, you're starting to worship. But, um, but isn't that interesting? I'm glad you mentioned that. I mean, what, what do you guys think is going on with that? And he's a reward of all those. Now, what, what happened right there, kind of, right? You're, you're dealing with all these sort of seemingly abstract characteristics of God, and then he's a reward of all those. What, what do you think is going on? It sounds like a song. It's what? It sounds like a song. A song, yeah. Okay, good. It is a personable. It, he does, and that gets to the communicable parts of him, right? That he, there's a person here. Right. It's interesting because it also seems to indicate that our confidence that our that our work matters, that our life matters, that our existence every day matters, and how we live it. If God is not sovereign, there's absolutely no... If, if God is not all these other infinite things, there's absolutely no hope 
that all of that would matter in a way that would be consistent with what should happen. So you think about justice. I think there's getting to an issue of God is just. You know, we believe that, that there will be a, a, a correction, if you will, of life. Through the cross, through atonement, through salvation and redemption, which is now accomplished but not fully applied. We're waiting for the full application of that in heaven. But in heaven, therefore, with all that I just said, we believe that God will not be mocked. And that, I'm seeing, if, did you notice where that came from? This thing's really weird. It's kind of echo a minute. But did you notice? Do you remember where that comes from in the scripture? It's, it's about God is not mocked and that you will reap what you sow and this idea that there's a rewarder. There's, a, there's justice. And no good work is, is unrewarded eventually in, in the scripture. Now, I don't mean to suggest that we're doing it for the reward. We're doing it in thanksgiving to God. But there's a sense of justice. It's going to be worth it. That's what I hear. But I hear it in this context precisely because all these other attributes around it they're bringing together that he's loving and just and holy and all these things, but he's do- but all of that would be a granddad. And right now I'm thinking, okay, that's my old grand, my impotent granddad that sits in a wheelchair, and isn't he a fine old man? But then you match all those attributes that are human to these attributes that are that are not human, if you will. And I realize, wow, this this old granddad actually is Zeus. You know, and he's the he's the Power of all powers, you know. I shouldn't say Zeus because he was he was not. But so I think that's that's what I think is going on there. It's a, it's a bit of a, a moment of, and it really comes down to, to reality for us. These attributes. That's my guess. Yeah. And then, yeah. I, I see that it implies an interaction. Yeah. He's not just sitting back and observing, mm-hmm. and then you know, in the last day, okay, here's your reward. I see an interaction. His independence and his autonomy exists, but yet he... He's involved. Is involved. Yeah, good. I mean, it comes out there, yeah. Well, I was just thinking that if God is incomprehensible, then uh, the reward is knowing him and knowing these attributes. Could be. I think that would be true. I mean, there's, there's, there is a privilege to know God like this. Which is why it's interesting, too, because so much of what Paul will say in defense of God, if I could use that crass way of thinking about it, but you remember in Romans 9, that's just basically what he says. You know, that the argument goes about how God has chosen some and not others, vessels of wrath, vessels of mercy. And finally, it's as if Paul, you know, he goes through why that's not unfair, why that's not unjust. And then he just kind of says, but how do you know that all of this stuff is not in order to reveal God? And that would be sufficient of an argument. It, it would be worth it. And I do think that that it's the hardest. If you had asked me, you know, uh, what is the hardest thing to comprehend about God? And that thing you did, I probably would have gone to one of a couple of things. But one would be this idea that how can this, it's the basic, you know, how, how can there be a hell? How, how could God have allowed there to be a hell? Couldn't there be some other way to reveal him? I mean, if he's God, couldn't he find a way to do it without help? And, you know, that's one that I struggle with, and a lot of people do. And Paul's answer is, there is, in, there is something about God that could not be known apart from judgment. And therefore, those vessels that were made as vessels of wrath have a noble purpose in the economy of God. 
insofar as they reveal God, their, his, his treatment of them. And, you know, the reason that's the hardest thing to believe is because it really gets into my anthropomorphic sort of way of thinking. It really puts a finger on, on the ouch button of my narcissistic humanism. My humanism is offended. Because right there, at that point, we are not in the center of this universe. There is a purpose greater than our own flourishing. There's a purpose greater than our own existence. And the purpose is the revelation of God. But that would assume what you said, Fred. That would assume that there is no higher, greater purpose in all of cosmology than to know God. By the way, it reminds me, have y'all read, uh, anybody here read J.I. Packer's Knowing God? It's an oldie, goldie. If you haven't, it's still such a great book. I would encourage you to get that book, Knowing God by J.I. Packer. And he has a way of, of walking right through many of these, these concepts and helping you really to worship God as you do it. It's a wonderful book. It's one of the first books I read as a Christian and it blew my mind. It was interesting. I gave it to it. Well, I'm, I'm going off. We'll do it. Section two. Who's, who could read it for me? God has all life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of himself, and is alone in and unto himself all-sufficient, not standing in need of any creatures which he has made, nor deriving any glory upon them, but only manifesting his own glory in, by, unto, and upon them. He is the alone fountain of all being, of whom, through whom, and to whom are all things, and has most sovereign dominion over them, to do by them, for them, or upon them, whatsoever himself pleases. So first of all, just, sort of, just to, to see what's happening here, what do you see just happening here? What, what, how do you relate chapter two, section 2 to section 1? What just happened? Don't, don't get into content yet, just at least not the specifics, but what just happened, basically? We have this description of God, somewhat abstract, if you will. What is God? Now, what is this a description of? There's a little caveat to that. What is it? It is important that I get you to think through this stuff, because it really is the aha stuff. That's what I do. I'm not trying to restrict it. Do you see something a little different about this chapter, this section? kind of how he works. Good, good. So you're, you're on it. It's How does a God like this relate to us in creation? That's it. It's, it's the relation of God. Yeah. It's not what is God. It's given who we what God is. How does a God relate to his creation? That's what's happening here. And this opens up the big word sovereignty and, and the way in which that works. So you see these descriptions here, and I put them there in italics for you in the bullets, and and they all get to this kind of thing, you know. And and so, so it, one word that was summarized, it really is the word sovereignty. What does this sovereignty mean? It's this idea of, of authority, but it's the authority that also has the power. So God is authorized. To Lord over all creation and, their, and and whatnot. He's authorized to do it, given who he is. And given who he is, not only is he authorized to do it, but he has full control over it. You couldn't have any other God if you assume section one. There could be no other God. You'll have to change the definition of God. And this is what I love 
about what Westerners are doing. They're trying, remember, to be consistent. You can't have your cake and eat it too. You can't have a humanist God and then pray to him and expect that this God could do anything. You, you have that Greek God again. You see, you've got to, if, if God's God, then this is how he's going to relate to the world. It, it, makes, it, it's, it follows, if you will. So you think about some of this language here. That where does life come from? This is, by the way, how I describe, especially today, when people say, you know, why is there so much pain in the world if God exists? And I'm going to go back to this idea and say, well, God is life. God, there is no, life is God. To, to, to reject God is to bring upon ourselves death. It's not that God, the curse of God is simply defined in Scripture, and he delivered them over to well, think about what that means. He delivered them over to three times in Romans 1. And he delivered them over to. He's saying, I'm giving them what they chose. And it's death. We brought all this upon ourselves. And there's no other way to view sin unless you believe that God's up there and doesn't have the power. And point goes here. You see it. Uh, and alone and into himself all sufficient. Um, et cetera, et cetera. You know, think about how it affects our view of love or doing anything. You know, God's in need of nothing. <laughs> so I remember George Beck, uh, we used to do this, or I remember early on, and, you know, one of our confessions, our worship is quoting out of Westminster, and it says, out of his mere good pleasure, you all, you all remember that little phrase, out of his mere good pleasure, he loves us or forgives us, I think it is, or something. And, you know, we read that, and what do you hear? You hear this sort of, um, it's, it's no big deal, it's kind of flippant language, right? You know, out of his own mere good pleasure. It's, it's, it's small. No, the idea, yeah, and and, and then, but the way that the lesson mentioned is, there is no other cause. There is no other cause. If you see that now, you're going to remember this little Bible study. There is no, there is no explanation for why God loved us. There is no explanation for why God saved us, except He just likes doing it. He just wants to do it out of His mere good pleasure. He did it. That means it's not contingent on my works. It's not contingent on my emotions. It's not contingent upon anything in of and of myself. It's just because he chose to do it. And that's it. And that's the basis of our assurance of salvation. Because of these attributes. Know how thoroughly then the sovereignty of God is affirmed in section 2. What other doctrines are established by this teaching? Um, that really is, I'm going to skip that because that's exactly what we're going to talk about next week. Um, but you want to guess? Can you, is the biblical word predestination come to mind? Or decrees? Or on and on it goes. It's like, well, how could you not? I mean, we, you know, if you're believing this about God, you're already there. We, we just, we close the book, you're already there. What does it mean to say that God is sovereign according to section 2? And I give you a couple of thoughts here. Um, and I quote Hodge here. Uh, let's see if there's something I want to point Y'all can look at that as your. Can y'all can they see that? You need to move on here. Um, yeah, we already talked about the foreknowledge issue. So we're getting at the human freedom issue. We've got 15 minutes, so I'm going to zip. We're going to get back to this next week, but it kind of gets you ready. So the next, next 
couple of things here is you'll just see, we're, we'll zip through it, but the sovereignty of God explored, and, you know, we might pick this up again next week and just go on right into the decrees, but I, I didn't want you to lose, the main thing I'm trying to convey here is there is a necessary connection between who God is and what then and how we would expect him to relate to creation. There is a necessary consequence of that. That's really the thing I want you to see that sets you up here for the rest of our whole theology class. Because everything we're going to do, when we start talking about salvation, this is going to come out. You know, when we start talking about human will and freedom, freedom of human freedom and God's freedom, we're going to, this is going to come up. You know, and on and on it goes. Suffering, prayer, what is your doctrine of prayer? What is your doctrine of suffering? We're going to talk about both of those issues very explicitly in this class as we talk about certain things. And you'll say, okay, let's start with who God is. And let's don't lose God. And whatever we do here, we're not going to lose God in this. And let's see where it takes us. Yeah. I think there's something that is, is terribly important in these two things you're talking about. Because the, the, the first section in here basically says... God can do anything he wants to right. do. Right. Well, if you stop, and it's all good if he does it. If you stop at that point without understanding how God has told us that his normal way of operation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he can do it a lot of ways, but here's a normal way of operation. Doesn't mean he's confined uh, to that. Well, but it, we're gonna, that's a big question actually theologically. Can God do evil? And it's kind of like an impossible question. He's, you say, but, but, but my point is, yeah. But look, to get to your point, though, I think you've actually hit on something. Y'all go down, scroll down here, and I'm going to the sovereign wisdom of God. See, what I'm doing here is really what you're doing. It's, well, then how would you define wisdom? Not, in other words, are we going to start with, this is what wisdom looks like. Now, let's ask, can God do something contrary to that wisdom? That would be Cartesian. That would be putting us in the arbiter seat. What you do is you say whatever God does is wise. Because God is infinitely wise. So if God, if I have a car wreck and God decrees it, it was wise. Now let's just get on with it. It's wise. It was a wise thing for me to have a car wreck. Somehow it fit into a redemptive plan of God for me to have a car wreck. Therefore, what's a faithful response to the car wreck? So that I can get whatever benefit and what I can experience, whatever it is that God planned for me in this car wreck. The sovereignty of God's going to change everything about the way you live your life. Everything. And it gets to that thing. What is good? Look at the way I do it. If you go down here to the sovereign power of God, I, this is a whole exploration of this. But where's that stuff about goodness here? Oh, this is all the stuff about goodness. On the, we, we talked some of it. You're going to have to go back and look at some of this. Jealous God. But look at God's goodness. We speak of something as good when it answers in all parts to the ideal. What is the ideal? It starts with the doctrine of God. Ideal is God. So it serves the interest of God, it's good. Have you thought about that? If it serves the interest of God, it's good. Because God is the ideal perfection, and therefore it's, it's good to be correlation to that. So, so uh, hence, in our description of goodness to God, the fundamental idea is that he, in his every way, all that he... Idea is that he is in every way all that he as God should be, and therefore answers perfectly to the ideal expressed in the word God. This is an amazing quote here. But if you think about suffering, 
you know, you'll see this later, but the, the syllogism goes something, an abbreviated syllogism will go something like this. If there's a God, there is no suffering, there is suffering, therefore there's no God. We're going to say there is a God, there is therefore no unpurposeful suffering. God's sovereignty creates all suffering for a purpose that is ideally, ultimately good, therefore there is no unpurposeful suffering in the world. You see, and I just did that very quickly in the top of my head, trying to put together a five-point solution. But I'm saying that, that that's the way this shapes your worldview. It goes, whoop, whoop, just like that. We're over here judging God because it doesn't look, from my vantage point, to be good. And therefore, we judge whether God exists. When what we would be doing, if we understand God, is saying, there is a God. There is nothing about God that is evil and ever does decree evil. Therefore, while there may be an immediate expression of suffering, there's some ultimate good in all of this. And again, it just totally challenges my narcissistic humanism. When I read Paul say, even vessels of wrath have this ultimate purpose to reveal God. And so, so you know, Luther, Martin Luther, you know, Martin Luther... You know, he, he, he writes about this in his bondage of the will, and he's going to say, you know, there really is no ultimate evil. Now, you've got to be careful, because that would be unbiblical to say there's no evil. We believe there is evil. But evil itself, under the sovereignty of God, that somehow is part of the redemptive matrix that's going to create uh, and reveal God. And you just got to just got to walk tenderly with this, because you're going to get in a lot of trouble theologically if you don't just say, and there's a mystery here. God cannot do evil. But if you use it, and, but he can decree it. We're going to use a biblical language of decree, but we're getting next week. you got to come next week, boys. Okay, we're going to deal with this stuff really heavy. Well, in the last ten minutes, so I, can I please get you to go through and just scan the rest of this up to the Trinity? Because we haven't gone through some of the communicable attributes. We've mostly focused on the incommunicable. The communicable, though, are, are here, and there's many. I really mean this. If you want a good devotional, I mean, I know I didn't put it together like this, but, hey, you're saying, what, what can I do in my devotions for the next month? Why don't you just take one of these topics, each with all these scriptures listed, and just walk through these scriptures. They're unbelievable, as you think about it now in context of what we said. But finally, let's get to the Trinity. Yes, I left ten minutes for the Trinity. Is that a joke or what? <laughs> You know, the Trinity, in one sense, is, is as easy as anything could be. And yet, it's also a mystery. Um, why would I say that? What do you think? Well, if, if we affirm that Scripture is a revelation of God, it's a fairly easy doctrine to demonstrate biblically. It's really pretty easy. You know, it's 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 it, there's there's just hard, there's hardly any doubt that the scriptures portray God as Trinity. One person, three persons. And if you're okay with that mystery, if you're okay with this idea that all right, now you're you're getting into this uncomprehensible thing here. I can know that there's Trinity, but I can't actually conceive of that in my own finite mind. Because why? You're dealing with, with categories that, that are beyond temporal categories here. How can you be three and one? You've got a spatial inconsistency in our heads. 
We, we, we can't think out of spatialness. How, do you, how can you be one, what, how can one person be three places? That's a spatial temporal concept, guys. Or time. How can you be one time here, one time like this here, one time like this here? And that's a, another temporal category. That's a creation-based category. <clears throat> Let's remember that God is outside of time and space. We call that transcendence. So now I'm back to the idea that I would expect that if there is God, and if God is this being that transcends all cosmology, that means he transcends time categories and space categories and whatever else like that you can think of. Then there's a fifth dimension. That's all I'm going to say. There's just a fifth dimension here, and it's God. Now, I know there is this kind of God because if you walk through the argument here, and I give you a pretty tight argument biblically, which is the only way you can get it. I can't define, I can't. I can't derive the Trinity from nature. I can just derive that he's huge and beautiful. I can't derive that there's a salvation by grace through faith and the sacrificial atoning sacrifice of Christ by nature either. There's just hardly any, and even the parallels I would want to find, if it's a parallel of something sacrificing or something, it just would fall short. I couldn't get there. Remember, we believe that the general revelation is insufficient in knowing that kind of salvific religion. And there's your key to the Trinity. The key to the Trinity is that it's a salvific doctrine. It's revealed through salvation. We get to the Trinity through the doctrine of salvation. Because that's how it is revealed to us. So here's some things here. Um, if you want to look at your handout. What do you think, though? Can you have a true knowledge of God without the Trinity? What would you lack if you had no Trinity in your knowledge of God? Good. Let's stop with the personal. How does God create relational beings out of a non-relational being if he's not relational? And how do you have relational being without persons? So in our image, he made them. He made them man and female in our image. Who is our? Already we have a Trinitarian idea at the very genesis of the world. Let us make man in our image, let him make us. And then, not only that, but you get female and male in God. Remember, the whole male-female thing is a covenantal way of relating, based on the covenantal assumptions of male and female and all that. But don't forget that God is female. If you mean by that, that the nature, whatever female is, it's an image of God. It's not, you know, man wasn't, man, masculine wasn't made in the image of God, and women were made in the image of Adam. It's true that Adam took the thing away, but women also are the image of God. It says it right there in Genesis, wherever that was, I think it was two fours like that, or somewhere. In our image, he made them feel male and female. Very clear in the Hebrew, very clear in the English too. So think about what that means, that, that there would be no, it makes sense to me that the art of God images his being and his being as relational as the art in the Imago Dei is relational. So we would have no relational God. There would be no love, because love requires relationship. Think about all the attributes of God. They're what we call personal attributes. They would assume relational being. 
and a relational being that pre-exists us, so that we can be made in the image of it. So I get you, I'm getting you to some of these points, you go, yeah, yeah, yeah. Why didn't I think of that? But there's a mystery. So not only does Scripture show the Trinity, but even that there is the, the image of the Trinity in creation. Um, so now you get to love, you get to all those other things you said that are personal based on the relational. Uh, let's read the Trinity. Who's got their, their, their confession on? Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, and the Holy Ghost eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. Now, the word begotten, you might know that word? It's not the word created. That's a covenantal term that, that appointed. So in Matthew, for instance, blank begot blank begot blank. You see, blank begot blank begot blank. We tend to import into that a creation word. It's a covenantal word. So the history of of Genesis is the history of covenant making and covenant heads, which is why I have no problem if you find an old Earth kind of you know science that suggests that maybe the time that preceded the flood is greater than the time after the flood. And most and many scholars, theologians, believe that's encoded in the scripture itself. I'm not getting into the debate of the young earth, old earth, but it would not, it's a red herring to me. It just, it, it really doesn't matter to me. Because what I do believe is that what we have is a history of covenant headship. And what you're defined there by, you're, what the Westminster uses, the word beget. It didn't use the word create, it used the word beget. And I want you to make note of that, because that's a covenantal, there is a relationship that's based on an internal divine covenant. God, and you're going to see that, the covenant with God in Christ. That God makes covenant with his son to say that the son makes covenant with the Holy Spirit who's sent, and off we go. So notice the covenantal language, not the creation language. What else did you notice? In that, Anybody? Say it again. How does this this passage describe the unity and the and the and the diversity of one substance, power, and eternity? That's the oneness. And what's their this their difference? That um, the Father is of none. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. The Holy Ghost eternally proceeding. Okay, so you see this differentiation of covenant. Now, there are a lot of, I, I could really bore you right now. There are many different theories, and I think it's, I don't know, I chose not to do it because it gets into a real rabbit trail, and often these theories are predicated upon, biblically speaking, outside theories that are then trying to make sense of the Bible in light of some other theory. So the economic trinity. You know, and that would be the view that's been viewed as unorthodox, that would view the Trinity as, well, it's really one God, and it's that same one God that just acts differently in different times of history. So that's the God who, well, now he's acting like a father. Now he's acting like a son. Now he's acting like a Holy Spirit. That would not be a biblical view of, of Trinity. Why? What did Jesus get what, what just got lost? 
Well, true. But it's a trinity of vocations. It's not a trinity of beings. So whatever you do, don't reduce the trinity to a trinity of vocations. They just act differently. One God just acts differently. Sometimes he comes to us in the form of, that would be a, a, an economic heresy. Okay, it's a billionism. Okay, there's another view, you know, and you can go off on this. What we just need to do is make our sense with it. But here's where I would really, really encourage you to think about. We are imposing, I mean, this is, this is where it'll blow your brain. So I, what I do here is I walk you through the idea of Trinity, what it is and what it isn't. You see that, A? I should just at least make note of that. It is peculiar to the Bible. There's no other religion in the world that has a trinity. It's taught in the Bible in its relation to salvation. That's very, very important. This is not just abstract, rationalist theology here. It is how God reveals himself unto our salvation. And all three persons of the trinity are essential to salvation. Where would you go to find that? I would take you to either Ephesians 1 or Colossians 1. Where in Ephesians 1 is a doxology of the trinity... And each Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and, and the role of the the role they play in our salvation is each very clearly articulated there. So if you want a good salvific understanding of Trinity, go to Ephesians 1. It's an excellent, excellent place to go. We just don't have time to read it here. But it is salvific. The Trinity in Scripture is that point where all other biblical ideas unite. It's the beginning and end of all insight into Christian. Uh, and again, I give you the, the, the Ephesians 1. Progressive nature of biblical revelation, such as the doctrine of training, moves from vague to specific, clear from um, from Genesis to Revelation. So, it's what we'd expect in a, in a redemptive historical revelatory event. That in the beginning, it's very murky. <laughs> Us, you do see you see all three of them, by the way. Where you know, in the beginning was God, and God was what? Ruach, hovering, the Spirit. The Spirit. You see the Word. John tells us the Word was the very presence of Christ in the creative act of, 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 of Scripture. Of course, we hear God decreeing all things. So there's a real sense of the Trinity is all right there. But it gets clear and full-blown by the time Christ gets here, just like Hebrews 1 says. I am looking at this begot language mm-hmm. in Westminster, mm-hmm. and I'm seeing something that looks like, I don't know what it's not, but it looks like a hierarchy in that the well, Father, yeah. you know, did not proceed from anybody, but the Son was begot by the Father, and then you've got the Holy Spirit. Actually, there is a hierarchy. Well, but then that... Covenantally, there's a hierarchy. But does that not rub up against yeah. one substance, power, and yeah. eternity? But see, that is a cosmology or a... a that is an ontology, not a covenantology, if you will. So there's a, they are one in being, one in substance. But the Father sends the Son. The Son, throughout his whole existence, makes it his purpose to be obedient to the will of the Father. And I, he submit, not your my will, Lord, but who? Thine will be done. Yeah. He is there under the authority of the Father. The Spirit is under the authority of Jesus Christ, who sent him and who is is who is uh, whose mission, if you will, is to reveal that which Christ has spoken, that he hadn't yet spoken in Scripture, that he's going to give to the apostles to speak in Christian. So there is a covenantal, I don't like the word hierarchy, but there's a covenantal sentness 
of God. There's a sentness of God that God the Father decrees, God the Son. I mean, there's some cliches that I can think of, but they all get you know, a little bit reduced, reductionistic. But yeah, the God is the decreer. He, he's the God who sends, you know, or, or decrees all things. The authority makes, you know, the decrees, if you will. The, the Son executes those decrees. The Holy Spirit, you know, uh, accomplishes, I should say, those decrees. The Holy Spirit executes those decrees. There's a sense in which you have this order of salvation that follows the Trinity. But, but the thing that's really important here is how we have lost the Chalcedonian argument in our imposing these sort of philosophical scientific ways of thinking about Trinity. So I'm sitting here trying to understand that. Here's the thing that I most want to leave you with about the Trinity. And this is a question I just can't ask enough of you when you start reading Scripture. How many times are we reading Scripture and we're imposing on Scripture categories and questions that the Scripture had no intention of, 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 of answering, of dealing with? You know, and you've, you've heard me, when we get to creation, again, if you haven't heard me do it, you'll hear us do it again. I will, I will hopefully show you in creation how the whole Scopes trial and the, and the science faith controversy is so boring and beside the point of what Genesis 1 through 3 is about. Genesis 1 through 3 is wanting to define a treaty, a treaty that is made between God and humanity, and as a prologue to that treaty, it's going to give you the history of God. And the God... The pro- prologue is, this is God. The history starts with Olatalodot in Hebrew. These are the generations of, ten times in Genesis. This is what this great God has done, starting with creation. Now will you obey him? Now will you sign the dotted line on this covenant contract that I'm giving you and be my vassal? That's what the Bible's about. And then we walk in here 2,000, no, 10,000 years later or 12, however long you think this was, 7,000 years, 6,000 years later for Moses' authorship, and you walk in there and you say, well, let's ask Genesis 1 to answer modern science's uh, recent discovery of fossil evidence for, and we're just missing the point. You know, the Bible says God created all things out of nothing. That's all you got to know. But, but we've missed the point. And this is a great example of it. Go down to the very end. I have an addendum. And I just want you to show you our church fathers doing it. So you could go through this if you ever want to. You have a Jehovah's Witness, and they come to the door. Here's your here's your your text right here. You can walk them right through this and show them from Scripture that, that we believe in the Trinity. But now I want to go to this uh, Antocene Fathers. Now this is the, here's some quotes from the by Antocene. I mean those church fathers that were before Chalcedon, before the Nicene Creed. So we have early church people here talking about Trinity. So this isn't a new doctrine. Some have argued that Constantine and his and his power, his male chauvinistic power struggle created the Trinity in order to put the male in a headship role over women. And this is this is farcical. It's a joke. It's it's their way before Constantine. But now if you come down to the, um, and you have the Nicene Creed, but I want to get you into the debate of that decree. So if you go down to uh, uh, down to the addendum, I just want you to, I want to encourage you to read it. This is going to help you get back into the, it's a very short little history um, that I read for you that you can just know, here's what was happening, and it's really abbreviated, so forgive me. Um, yeah, we got to stop. So I was going to show it, but what you're going to hear is Nestorius <laughs> defining the word, I mean, defining the Christ as a temple. 
So for him, he makes a distinction to saying Christ is the temple and Christ is the covenant, which is word. And therefore, when he starts talking about Christology, they're talking about salvific language here. They're talking about how it is that God reveals himself in the eternal word, static of God, the mind, the will, the covenant of God, word. And this covenant God becomes flesh and temples among us. And this is the way they're describing, this is how they're arguing about the Trinity, is they're, they're coming at it from the standpoint, I'm saying, of, of salvation. And how is it that Christ is our temple, flesh? The mediatorial presence of God in our midst. Or the immediate presence of God in our midst needs to be his flesh. And how is it that God is the perfect expression of the temple executed by the divine head, Adam? Or, or the divinely appointed head of the human race, the second Adam? And, and it just kind of, it, it, I hope you see it, and it kind of goes, man, maybe all this Trinitarian debate stuff is just really been missing the point. These guys weren't thinking, oh, they were doing some ontologies and what is the nature of the being of God and Christ and all that, but they were mostly concerned about salvation and not losing it. And how we would define Christ as order to have a full mediator, one who is both God and man. God, the, the eternal, abstract, transcendent God, and man, the, trend, the imminent temple presence of God in order that salvation can be completed and it just blows your mind. So hopefully that will be helpful. I will stop now. Does anybody just have a question they want or a comment that you want to throw out there? If not, I'm going to call it a day. I am trying to keep to the time. Anybody got a question or thought? If you have one, you can come to me afterwards. But let's uh, let's just for a moment stop. I know I'm just one minute and close your eyes. Take a deep breath and really say, God. <laughs> You are big. You are great. You are infinite in your being. You are perfect. You are immutable. And you are most everything that we're not. It should be. So, Father, we pray you would take tonight as we go home and pray and thank that you take it and increase our faith in you from it. Increase our knowledge of you that we be more faithful. But most of all, Lord, help us to take our shoes off and worship you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.